That's why we're gathered here this morning. When we look outside of God's word and we look at other foundations, all we see are shaky things, things that won't last, things that don't provide true security. But in God's word, in what he says, we can have a firm foundation. And that's why we're here this morning, to hear true, firm, stable truths. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. It brings me great joy to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. If you have a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 1062, Hebrews 4. It's been a couple weeks since I preached from the book of Hebrews, and the last time that I preached on Hebrews 3, there were about a third of you here. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Hebrews 3, 7 until the end of chapter 4. Hebrews 3, 7 until the end of chapter 4. If this is the first time that you've used the Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in chapter 3, starting from verse 7. Hebrews 3, 7, and it says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ, if we hold firmly until the end that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we can see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because uh, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest. In keeping with what he has said, so I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day 
God rested from all his works. Again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day, today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. For the word of God is living and effective, and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we pray to you this morning because we are weak. Our hearts are hardened. Our, our zeal is lacking. Our, our grip on our confession is weak. So we ask, Lord, for grace. We ask for mercy that you would help us now as we hear from your word. We need you. So we ask for your help. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are now eight weeks into 2022. So I want to ask you, how are your New Year's resolutions going? Some of us resolved to exercise, but felt our belts tighten as we ate donuts in the foyer. Some of us resolved to read, but felt our motivation putter out as the television glue and our books gather dust. For all our impeccable aspirations, come February, they're nowhere to be found. They disappeared because though our eyes were on the prize, things got difficult. Work was too stressful. Family was too demanding. A sudden appearance of a chocolate frosted donut and as we dwell on our difficulties, our dreams start to lose their luster. We just don't care anymore. Our zeal fades. It doesn't take long for that difficulty to rot into distrust. Suddenly our commitments turn into chores. Why am I doing this anyway? What's the point? 
And over time, we decide that whatever we're doing is not worth doing anymore. And so we stop. We go from dreams to difficulty, from difficulty to distrust, and from distrust to disobedience. The same went for the Israelites in the wilderness. After God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, he was leading them to the promised land. But just before they were to enter the promised land, they became afraid. They were intimidated by the difficulties of conquest. And suddenly the promise didn't seem as desirable as it used to be. And so they began to grumble and, and complain. And quickly things escalated to the point where they were ready to remove Moses as their leader and go back to Egypt where they were slaves. Their dreams had led to difficulty. Their difficulty to distrust and distrust to disobedience. They didn't keep their eyes on the prize. The same goes for our own spiritual lives. See, we are in the wilderness of this world right now. And we're destined for a new heavens and a new earth where we dwell with Christ forever. And sometimes that dream is vivid. We pursue godliness with, with all our might. But we don't always keep our eyes on the prize, do we? Difficulties arise. We lose sight of what really matters. And that difficulty rots into distrust, eventually deciding that Jesus isn't worth it. Our dreams will lead to difficulty. Our difficulty rots into distrust and our distrust to disobedience. God this morning wants to warn us from this distrustful disobedience and recalibrate our focus to look ahead to the glorious rest to come. In other words, he wants us to keep our eyes on the prize. That's the main command this morning, to keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Three reasons for us from our passage this morning as to why we ought to keep our eyes on the prize. One, because the rest remains. Because the rest remains. Number two, because the word exposes. Because the word exposes. And number three, because Jesus passed. Because Jesus passed. If you have enough time to write some more, I can expand a little bit. It's because the rest remains for us. Because the word exposes our hearts. And because Jesus passed to the heavens. Because Jesus passed to the heavens. Let's start with reason number one, why we are to keep our eyes on the prize. Because the rest remains for us. Look again at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. Since the promise to enter the rest remains, we are to fear. 
that none of us have fallen short. This fear that they're talking about here when it says beware isn't supposed to be a terror of hell. Right? It's not a terror of hell, but rather a sober-minded awareness of the grace of God. To, to recognize who's talking to you when he's warning you to keep your eyes ahead on the prize. And this is important to note because the author of Hebrews is not saying that we should be afraid of losing our salvation. Because if we were to lose our salvation, then that would mean that we would still be afraid of the results of our salvation being death and punishment in hell forever. But Hebrews 2.15, which we looked at a couple months ago, says that Jesus shares in our flesh and blood so that he could free us from slavery to the fear of death. So, so Jesus in his redemptive work actually frees us from that terror. So it wouldn't make sense for, for Jesus to save us from the fear of death and then for the author of Hebrews to exhort us to be afraid of death. So then what kind of fear is it? It's a fear of neglect. It's a fear of neglect. We've, we've all had this kind of fear. And the fear comes when we have something that we value. Okay. My senior year of high school, I received my guitar as a graduation gift. It was made out of solid koa wood. You can see it looks like Hawaiian wood, dark amber, abalone inlays deep, resonant sound. I played a janky $100 acoustic guitar up until that point. I was salivating at the opportunity to play it. But before I got a chance to play it on Sunday, a younger Brian Lee asked if he could use my guitar on a youth group talent show Friday night. I said, sure. <laughs> And as he played on stage, I watched at the edge of my seat. My palms began to sweat. And he played great, he played beautifully. But as he walked off, he tripped. And my guitar dropped on stage. My knees got weak. Brian looked up in fear. That night, both Brian and I were afraid. Not just about the loss of the guitar, but the neglect of it. The neglect of it. In the same way, our fear of God here in this verse isn't one of distrust or a fear of losing God who has been faithful to us, but of neglecting that salvation that God has given to us. Neglecting this precious gift, tripping and dropping it on the stage. John Calvin says this, he says, the fear which is here recommended is that which shakes the, isn't that which shakes the confidence of faith, but that fills us with concern that we grow not torpid with indifference. Let us fear then, not that we ought to tremble or entertain distrust as though uncertain to the issue, like we're not sure if God's going to save us, but fear lest we be unfaithful to God's grace. So we fear 
Not because we're scared of, of falling away, but because we don't want to neglect the good promise God has given us. And you can't fear unless you care. Those who care fear because they don't want to neglect this good promise that God has given to us, this precious salvation, this promise to enter the rest. You see, those who are found to have fallen short, the ones who are not believers, they don't fear the Lord. You can see that in verse 2. Let's read that again. It says, For we also have received the good news just as they did, but the message they heard did not benefit them, since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. In faith. The author draws a contrast here between the Israelites and us. See, while both groups hear the good news, God speaks to both audiences. The message doesn't benefit the Israelites because they were not united with those who heard it in faith. The difference between those who benefit from the good news of the gospel and those who don't is faith, belief, actually believing that God's promises are true. You can see that in chapter 3, verse 19, that they were unable to enter because of what? In verse 19, their unbelief, their unbelief. In other words, what separates those who benefit and those who do not benefit from this promise is not the degree of works or the amount of obedience that you do, but the faith that you possess. Therefore, the, the focus of this command to fear is not to do more or to do better, but to believe. That's the command, to keep believing, to hear the good news in faith, to look ahead, to know that the promise to enter his rest is there, to keep your eyes on the prize. And truly believing that that rest is available to us, that we should go into it. The text then explains why the promise to enter the rest remains, as evidenced by Scripture. You can see that in verse 3. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore my anger, they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way, and on the seventh day, God rested from all his works. Again, in the passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day, today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Okay. Verse 3 says that we will enter that rest. But what is that rest? Well, we're going to break this explanation into three parts. It's a really complex argument. So see if you could track with me here. First, the rest is a day. This promised rest is a day. Okay. Uh, you can see in verse 4 that there's a reference to creation in Genesis 2. God works for six days in creating uh, the world. And then on the seventh day, what does God do? He rests. 
he rests. So there is a specific day for rest, uh, for God's rest. It's a day of rest. Got that? So number one is that the rest is a day. Number two, the rest is a place. The rest is a place. In verse five, God says that they will never enter into whose rest? God's rest. Now, this is a quotation of what we read earlier in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, which references the Israelites before they enter into what? Yeah, the promised land. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land, but the Israelites disobey the Lord. And God says in response that they will never enter his rest. So God makes the Israelites that didn't trust him and and turned away and hardened their hearts wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire first generation, except for the two men that believed, would all die. And once their children grew up and that entire generation died, then they entered the rest. And what do they enter into again? The promised land. The promised land, which represents God's rest. So the rest is a place. So number one, the rest is a day. Secondly, the rest is a place. Third, there's a problem. There's a problem, okay? And the problem is in verse seven. It notes that the command specifies a certain day. Which day? Today, right? Today. But the author of Hebrews notes that this verse was written not by Joshua, in the days of the Israelites in the Exodus, while they're traveling around in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land, it was actually written by David. Now, David, sorry, let me put it this way. Does David come before or after Joshua? After. He comes 400 years after Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. So, is today the present or the past? It's the present. It's today. It's right now. Right? Right? So, if David's talking about today in the present tense, which means the invitation to the rest is still here, then does that mean that the promised land of Canaan was the real rest? No, because that happened when? In the past, okay? So, can you see the argument that the guy's making here? Number one, the rest is a day. It's a time. Number two, the rest is a place like the promised land. Number three, it can't be Canaan. Because Canaan's in the past, and we're in the present. So sum it all up, the invitation to enter the rest is still going on today. So, nobody gets invited to a party that's already finished. right? So if you're still invited to this party, then that means that there is a future real rest to come. Okay, Does that that make sense to everybody? And that's exactly the conclusion that the author of Hebrews makes in verse 9. Read with me. Verse 9. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. This is the bottom line of this super long explanation. That the Sabbath rest remains. Sabbath rest remains remains. In other words, there's still a rest for you to enter into. And the point of this promise to enter this rest is to give you hope. It's to give you hope. Real rest is still available 
for you. Rest. That's what God promises to those who will follow after him. Real rest. This life is full of nonstop toiling, work, nine to five after nine to five, day after day, a toiling marathon from the bed to the shower to work, then skipping the gym and going to the grocery store and then to the kitchen and to the kitchen sink, then to the laundry, then to the shower and then back to bed and then over and over and over again. But Jesus promises to everyone who comes to him that he will give you rest. And that promise is still available to you today, right now. So fear the Lord. Pay attention. Look forward to the prize ahead, to this real rest. Keep your eyes on the prize. This is why we as a church make a deliberate effort to sing about heaven. We aren't just here to hold hands and sing kumbaya while we ignore the inevitabilities of death. We believe that there is a true hope, a real rest. And every time that we sing songs of heaven about how we will be dressed in righteousness alone, when we sing of the lamb in Emmanuel's land, when we sing of a city not made by hand, we are reorienting our gaze heavenward. We are keeping our eyes on the prize. That's why we sing about heaven. When you encourage other believers, are you keeping your eyes on the prize? Are you helping them keep their eyes on the prize, on this real rest? Do you talk about heaven? When, when people complain to you about their work week, or talk to you about their struggles. How often does heaven enter into those conversations? I'm not saying that we should ignore the present moment with its difficulties. After all, this letter is written to people that are enduring trials for the sake of Jesus. But our comfort doesn't come from finding solutions to our problems in this life. What motivates Christians isn't the excitement of self-improvement or self-optimization with our own ability to be able to conquer our problems. What motivates us isn't what's here, but what's ahead. The promised rest remains. So when you talk to other believers, direct their gaze forward forward. Help them to keep their eyes on the prize because the promised rest remains. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want to thank you for being here. I wonder what hope you have. Do the promises that you hold to endure beyond your present difficulties, beyond this life? Oftentimes, we obsess about improving our present so much that we forget that we have a future. What are you looking to for rest? That's reason number one for why we should keep our eyes on the prize, because the promised rest remains. Here's our second reason. Because the word exposes our hearts. Because the word exposes our hearts. It's precisely because of this promised rest that the author of Hebrews gives us this exhortation in verse 11. Read with me. Let us then 
Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Same pattern of disobedience. The, the command is clear. Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one falls into the same pattern of disobedience. What is that pattern? Well, let's go back to chapter 3 and read from verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. This is, the, this is the pattern that the author is warning us from. It says, Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. What did they do? The Israelites tested, they tried, and they saw his works for 40 years. In fact, in, in Numbers 13 and 14, when the Israelites are at the precipice of the promised land that Moses had so faithfully led them to, the moment they hear about how bad the fight is going to be, they, they're so terrified. They're so distrusting of the difficulty ahead of them that they literally said, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. That's what we talked about in the beginning of the sermon, that their difficulties led to distrust and their distrust led to disobedience. They didn't keep their eyes on the prize. And God wants to warn you this morning to not do the same. To not do the same. Don't disobey. Don't distrust his name. Don't get distracted by the difficulties of this life. Instead, we are to make every effort to enter that rest. Now, by saying make every enter, uh, effort to enter the rest isn't referring to make sure that you get granular and that you're doing every single action possible to enter that rest. That's not what this is talking about. This verse isn't commanding us to check to see if there's any effort that we aren't doing and obsessively check every box on the obedience list. What verse 11 is talking about is a conscientious obedience. A better translation would be to be diligent in entering the rest or be zealous or eager to enter into the rest. In other words, we are to be zealous, dogged, looking forward, keeping our eyes on the prize. This fallen world is not our home. This world is passing away. It's a wilderness. And the Lord is warning us, hey, don't get too comfortable here. Don't get distracted by the difficulty. Don't get jaded into distrust. Instead, keep your eye on the prize. Look ahead to the promised rest that remains for you. See the privilege of that joy that's ahead and use that to motivate you zealously enter into that rest. Keep your eyes on the prize. See, God is not concerned with us meeting his obedience quota. He's concerned with the diligence of our efforts. But how can we judge that diligence, that heart disposition, the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Well, what we do is we use God's word. You can see that in verse 12. For the word of God is living 
and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes to whom we must give an account. The word of God is the tool we use to cut into the heart. Look at the words that are used to describe the Bible here. Living, effective, sharper than any double-edged sword. Spurgeon describes the word of God like this, that the, that the word of God is edge all over. Now, some will ask what it means for the sword to penetrate as far as the separation between soul and spirit. I don't think that the author is saying that the soul and spirit are two different parts that can somehow get like chopped in half. The point is that the penetration of God's word is so precise, so sharp, that it is able to separate the very essence of your being. Protons and neutrons, soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it cuts so deep and it's because it cuts so deep that it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And when we use it, we're able to cut into our own souls. And that's what it does. The word of God reveals the distrustful status of our hearts that leads to disobedience. And there is no point in which our sinful disposition or disobedience will be hidden from him because all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you're disobeying him or if you're distrusting him, he sees all of it. He sees all of it. There are some of us who are in need of this kind of warning. Some of us are drifting, distracted by the difficulties of wandering in this wilderness. I don't want to diminish the hardships that can arise from living in this life. Sometimes it's hard enough to wake up, let alone walk in obedience. But let me ask you, how is your heart? Not how your circumstances are or how difficult your situation is, but how's your heart in light of those circumstances? See, if you leave your heart unchecked, apathy and atheism can begin to creep in. Unbelief can slowly cloud our vision until all we can see is darkness. And God, in his word, is telling you, wake up. Difficulties do not excuse disobedience. You are completely naked and exposed before the eyes of God. He sees your distrustful thoughts, our temptations towards falling away from him, and he wants to warn you from falling into this same pattern of disobedience. God, in his mercy, is telling you in his word to use God's word as a mirror to examine yourself, to see your sin, and to take it seriously. Part of the way that God intends to use God's word to expose your heart is through the church. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 tells us to watch out, brothers and sisters, 
so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. The best way to do that, to encourage people, to, to make sure that people aren't hardened by sin's deception, to watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart, is to use God's word to expose our hearts. Sometimes the best way to wake someone up is for someone else to come and dump a bucket of ice water onto you. And that's what we do when we open God's word for others. Apply God's word to people's lives. Open God's word to people's hearts. Everything is exposed in the eyes of God. You will be exposed in the eyes of God. So take God seriously. There are some of us here this morning that need to repent because of our distrustful hearts, because of our hardened hearts, because of our drifting hearts. It would be a good use of your time to bring in other brothers and sisters and to shine light into that difficulty. Let them apply God's word to you. Fear him and zealously enter the rest. Zealously enter the rest. See the promised rest ahead and keep your eyes on the prize. That's reason number two. Because the word of God reveals our hearts. Here's our last reason for this morning. Because Jesus passed to the heavens. Because Jesus passed to the heavens. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. The author here is telling us to look at Jesus who's gone before us. Jesus, the Son of God, came onto the earth, truly God, truly man. He lived the perfect life that we never could. And upon finishing his work on the cross, he ascended to heaven and passed through the heavens, which means he is in the place of rest. He's there already. He's gone before us, and we are holding fast to our confession. What are we confessing? We're confessing Jesus. Hebrews 3.1. It says this, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. We're holding fast to Jesus' work, what, what he did for us. And the call here is to hold fast to that confession. And what does Jesus do? He explains in verse 15. Read with me. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. Jesus understands our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to experience difficulty, hardships, temptations. And yet... Jesus doesn't sin. When Jesus was on earth, 
he went out to the wilderness and Satan comes to tempt him to sin. But Jesus in the wilderness, in the midst of his weakness after 40 days of fasting, at the peak point of difficulty, Jesus doesn't give in. Where, where Israel fails and disobeys and turns away from God, Jesus succeeds. He never sinned. And it's in this great high priest's work in never sinning that we can find our hope. See, Jesus gives you the best of both worlds. You have a Savior who's able to understand what it's like to go through difficulty. And yet, in his capable hands, he's also the only one able to give you real solutions to your weakness, to your problems. It's not just relatability. It's also real righteousness that's being offered to you. And notice in verse 14 that, that the author refers to Jesus here as the great high priest. The great high priest. You see, there's one place in the Bible where the great high priest and the Sabbath rest are mentioned together. We read it in our Bible reading this morning. Let's, let's turn there. It's in Leviticus 16, 29 through 35. Leviticus 16, 29 through 35. Let's, let's turn there in our Bibles. It's the third book in the Bible. Leviticus 16, 29 through 35. Once a year, the Israelites would have an atonement offering in which the, the great high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt, and offer a sacrifice for atonement for the forgiveness of the nation's sin, which means that this priest would mediate or, or stand in between God and the nation and make a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation. And on that day, God commands this in verse 29 of Leviticus 16. It says this, This is to be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. So the Israelites are commanded not to work on the day of atonement, on this day of forgiveness, of purification. Why? Because the day of atonement, this day of forgiveness, is the day of Sabbath rest. Sabbath rest. In other words, the day Israel was forgiven of their sins was the day that they could practice real rest. So the rest that the author of Hebrews gives us actually has three distinct symbols. The first is the day, the Sabbath, right, or the seventh day of creation. Second, you have the promised land, which the Israelites failed to enter into. But third, you have the day of atonement where Israel would be forgiven of their sins from a sacrifice. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of these images. He's a fulfillment of all three of these images. Jesus is the great high priest. And what does Jesus do as our high priest? He offers 
atonement. He offers atonement. He offers purification for our sins. And Jesus passes through the heavens and enters into the place of rest. That's how the author of Hebrews opens this book. And in Hebrews 1.3, he says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, it's finished. The work is done. It's complete. Or to use the language of, of Hebrews 4.10, the person who has entered his rest rested from his own works. And so Jesus sits down, resting after his finished redemptive work. So if Jesus is the fulfillment of this rest, if he's the one that gives us real rest from our works, a real place for us to enter into, a real forgiveness of sins, then it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to hold on to the confession of him. We're trusting Jesus. It's Jesus that we're looking towards. When we're keeping our eyes on the prize, what we're doing is we're looking at Jesus because he is that prize. He is the one that we're looking towards. It's no wonder then that the author of Hebrews exhorts us the way he does in verses 15 and 16. Let's, let's read 15 again in Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, up until this point, all the other commands can be summed up with one thing. Look forward. Keep looking forward. Keep your eyes on the prize. The promised rest is still there. Eagerly enter into that rest. Hold on to Jesus, who's ahead of us. At verse 16, however, we don't just see an exhortation, but help, but help. See, God knows our weaknesses. He knows that we fail at this in every step of the way. We ignore God's words and we don't fear him. Our zeal fades into disobedience. We don't hold on to Jesus and our, and our grip weakens, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, and Jesus also succeeds in every single way that, that we failed in. And he calls us, and God calls us, to approach the throne of grace with boldness, to find mercy, and to find grace in our time of need. This isn't something that we get later. This is something that we get now. If you're not a Christian, this is the main message of Christianity. We're, we've all disobeyed a holy and righteous God. And because of our sin, we deserve to be punished, to be barred entrance from this rest, to suffer in hell forever. And what we need is forgiveness or mercy. But because of God's kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. He lived the perfect life that you and I never could. He endured difficulty and never distrusted. He obeyed perfectly. 
And on the cross, he died, bearing the penalty of death that you and I deserve for our sins. And what he did in that sacrifice is he made atonement. He was the sacrifice for sins for us. And he died. And on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, into that rest, where he sits at the right hand of the Father. So if you turn from your sin and you trust in this Jesus, you can find forgiveness. You can find mercy in your time of need. So turn to him. We would love to talk to you more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. You can go to him because it's still today. The promise is still here. You can go to him while it's still called today. Friends, we can go to Jesus for real mercy and find real grace for our time of need. And it's precisely because of his help to us in Christ that we can enter into this rest. Jesus can provide grace to remind us of this promised rest when our clarity is blurred. So you can keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus can help us stir our affections to eagerly enter that rest and save us from the patterns of disobedience. And Jesus will hold us as we hold on to the confession of him. Jesus helps us keep our eyes on the prize with fear, knowing that the promise is still there for us, with zeal, knowing that God knows the intents of our hearts, and with boldness, knowing that Jesus, our mediating high priest, has already passed through the heavens and has done what we never could have done. And when our earthly labors are done, when we finish our race and receive that prize that we've kept our eyes on for so long, we'll be able to see him, our king of grace, his pierced hand, because the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. Let's pray. Lord, we long to see you. So we ask, Lord, for your grace. We need it because we fail so often. So we do ask for your help. Give us grace. Give us mercy in our time of need. Help us to keep our eyes on the prize. And we trust that you will help us to do it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take the next few minutes to share. Take